Ecclesiastes chapter 3, next week as we announce Sunday, we're going to start verse by verse through the book of James, and I'm excited of that, about that. It'll be my first time as pastor to take one whole book and just teach straight through it, and it's a really good one, I think, to start with that. It has a lot of good foundational things. So tonight in the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll read several verses here to start this chapter, some famous, very poetic language here in the book of Ecclesiastes, break that down, talk about it a little bit bit and verse 14 will be the key text that talks about if God establishes something, then it lasts forever if it's done by the hand of God and not by the hand of man. So if we get that far, I have a list of a few things that God has done that will last forever, but I think mostly we'll just talk about the first one tonight, which is the Word of God and how the Bible says that the Word of God will endure forever. So in your handout sheet, it's just a bunch of verses, and if we make it that far, it all has to do with the Word of God and how that it's God's Word, not man's Word, and God has promised that it will last forever, and we know that it will. So if we make it that far, I just have them printed out so that rather than me just reading through them or trying to turn through them all, you'll be able to follow along as we read. But Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and as I said to begin, let's go ahead and read the first several verses, first portion of this chapter. We'll just read it straight through, and then we'll get into a little bit here tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse number 1. The Bible says, "...to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die." A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Verse 5 continues. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Then Solomon continues in verse 9, what profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. And then it says of God, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. So we'll pause here for a minute and talk about the fact that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book showing the frailty and the vanity of man. If you have studied the book before, you know that it's King Solomon who wrote it that was one of the wisest and most powerful men to ever live, yet he laments back and forth throughout the book about the vanity of life when he looks at his achievements, when he looks at his pleasures, when he looks at all of the things that he has, yet considers that life is short, that we have a few trips around the sun. He says, even if you are wealthy, even if you are powerful, you're alive and you die, and then you might leave it all to somebody who's stupid and who just wastes it and throws it away. And he laments what is the meaning of life, and all throughout the book, he goes back and forth on this vanity of life and what does it mean 
and then it comes to the conclusion of the whole matter, which is the last verses of the book that tell us to fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man to have the word of God revealed to us, to fear God, to know the true and living God and to keep his commandments is the duty of man. And when we fulfill this as our duty, it gives us a purpose. It gives us an outlook on life to look past the vanity of living a handful of years, getting all the money we can get, enjoying ourselves and then dying and there being nothing else. And without Jesus Christ, that's really all that there is. And we see the despair of life of people all around us. We were talking again just before church about COVID and how hard it's been on our country and even on the economy and how many people have gotten sick and died. But even more than that, how many people have been afraid of death? And the reason that we as humans fear death is because if we do not know Jesus Christ, we don't have the answer to that. That's why I've admonished us as a church and as Christians that, yes, we we have our opinions, whether it's political or whatever else, and we should stand up for what we believe is right. But I believe the world needs to look at us as the church and be able to see a steady and a calm and a demeanor that says my worldview is not shaken. If death is coming for me, I'm not necessarily asking for that right now, but I know that my soul has been saved. I know that my Redeemer liveth and it can help us be a witness for Christ if people look and see that we are calm, that we are steady, and that we do not fear death as other people do, for we have a hope that goes beyond it. And many times in the book of Ecclesiastes, it points out the fact that life is short and that death will surely come for each and every one of us at some point. And this passage that we read in chapter 3 to begin is beautiful and poetic. Sometimes it will be read at funerals or in other works of art. And what it's talking about is there's a time and a season to life. We are not immortal. It's part of Solomon looking and realizing that life is vain apart from God, apart from knowing him, apart from keeping his commandments, because we are so temporal, because we are so frail. And one of the things that he says is that there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And that in between our life comes in times, it comes in seasons, and then our life is over. Look down for a moment at verse number 17, if you will, and then we'll back up again. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beast. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beast. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. 
He says that God allows this to be manifested to our knowledge in verse 18, that mankind might see that they themselves are beasts. God wants us to be aware of the fact, not that we're like animals in the fact that we don't have a soul, but God wants us to know that we are human, that we are not God, and that our days are numbered. And verse 19 points to death as the common denominator that unites us all. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how good your medical care is. Unless Christ comes for us as a member of the church at the time, of the rapture, we are going to face death. And this is something we have to reckon with. Verse 20 says, all go into one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. We left off reading at the beginning in verse number 11, when it says that God's made everything beautiful in his time. Then it says of God, he hath set the world in their heart. What this phrase is referring to is the fact that God has placed within the heart of each and every human being the desire to know about eternity, the desire to know about God and the meaning of life and how we might gain immortality to live beyond this life. The word there in verse 11 for world has to do with time, with an everlasting, unending amount of time. That's how it's used in the Bible. Um, I think about 60 times in the King James, it's translated everlasting. And if you look at Webster's 1828, one of the definitions of world is time, an indefinite amount of time, such as the phrase world without end. Sometimes the word world will be used without referring just to this physical temporal world, but talking about in that sense of eternity and unending time. And the Bible says God has placed within our heart eternity. In other words, there's something within each and every human being, whether they live in America or whether they live in Uganda or whether they live somewhere where they've never heard the gospel story. The Bible says that we look at creation and there is no language where creation does not witness to the heart of mankind. There is a creator and I must seek him. That's not enough to be saved, but that's enough to start us in the direction to seek the truth. And I believe if we seek truth, God will use any one of a number of means to reveal the truth to us so that we might choose to receive Christ as our Savior. God have, has set eternity in our hearts. I want to talk about this on a Sunday morning coming up in a couple of weeks but when we look at the Great Commission and witnessing to people, God has commanded us to give the gospel to every creature. And then it's up to that individual person whether they want to say yes to no, yes to Christ or no to Christ. But I don't believe we should be so intimidated in our witness if we think, well, I don't have a Bible college degree or I'm a new Christian and I don't know what, how could I answer all of the questions that someone might throw at me. When we try to witness to someone about their soul, we know that we have the built-in advantage of the fact that God has created them to want to know the answers that we are trying to give them. We have the answers to the question that every human being has within their heart, whether they want to fight it or ignore it or not. And that is that sense of eternity in our heart that says this life can't be all that there is. I know there's a creator. I know there has to be a greater purpose. So when someone asks you questions that you don't know the answer to, 
It's okay to say, well, I don't know about that, but I do know that Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible says so. History and evidence says so. And Jesus said He is the only way to the Father and we must receive Him, repent of unbelief, or accept Christ as our Savior, and that's the only way to be saved. And if that's all we're able to tell people over their objections and their questions, we are doing what God has commanded us to do and we know that the Holy Spirit will then work on their heart to draw them to God because God desires for every person to be saved. We do not save anyone. We simply witness to them of the God that can save them. He has set the world in their heart or eternity in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. In other words, as humans, we desire to know the the answers to these eternal questions, but we're not able to perfectly find it all out. We're not able on our own to figure it out because God wants us to know that he is God and we are not. And we have to come to him for those answers. Verse 12. I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Several verses express that throughout this book, that God does not think us more spiritual if we punish ourselves or make ourselves sick or refuse to enjoy good things. No, God God created pleasure. God created the good things that we can enjoy and that should be a part of our life, but that does not give the answer to those eternal questions, which is where the book eventually leads to, which is fear God and keep his commandments. Now, in the midst of all of this doubt and in the midst of all of this wondering about the meaning of life and vanity and the realization that life in this mortal sphere without God is temporal and short and that death comes to all of us and acknowledging the fact that all of mankind's experiences come in a time and a season and then they pass away, we find this emphatic declarative statement in verse 14. When Solomon says this, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. But God doeth it that men should fear before him. Yes, what our life is, is time in a season. Things pass away. We cannot keep our body from getting old and from eventually dying. Anything that we set out to do with our hands has a shelf life. But whatever God does, it is forever. And then it says that nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. But God does it as an example to men that they should fear before him, that they should fear God, and that we should realize that God is eternal. What he does lasts forever. We do not have the same capability. Therefore, we need to seek God and come to know him and his ways. This idea of man's experiences coming in a time and a season and passing away is expressed through the life of Moses in Hebrews 11. If you have your print out there, the first passage is Hebrews 11, 23 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin 
for a season. Moses, through faith, believed the word of God that it would be better in the long run for him to identify with the Israelites, God's people, and suffer affliction with them than to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, to be a prince in Egypt, but to deny his heritage, to deny the revealed word of God, and to deny the suffering with the people of God. And it describes him coming to this decision as choosing it better to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And sin can bring us pleasure. Sin can bring us some enjoyment. That's why Satan has so many enticements that he will throw at us. James says that we are tempted when we are enticed and drawn away of our own lust, our own sinful nature, desires any number of things that might be wrong according to the word of God. And then we are enticed by the lust of the eyes. The What are the other two? The, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The pride of life, the lust of the eyes... Bless with the flesh. Thank you. Those things are thrown at us. And yes, they can bring us some pleasure or gratification, but Moses knew that it would only last for a season. Just like winter is replaced and we go from fall to winter to spring to summer. We know it's coming. It's here. It lasts for a little while and then it passes away. So the pleasures of sin will come into our life and stay there and we might enjoy it. But just as surely as it came, like the season comes and goes, that season of pleasure will leave. And then comes judgment, then comes suffering, then comes the innate, inherent struggles that accompany sin. Because when we sin, we're going against God's nature. And He allows us to see that when we rebel against Him, things do not go well for us. The way of transgressors is hard. He allows us to learn that and see that so that we might be convicted and come back to him. Verse 26 continues, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The implication being the riches that come from the reproach of Christ are eternal. While all of those riches in Egypt might have been nice, they were very, very temporal. As Ecclesiastes 3.14 tells us, the works of God, when He does it and establishes it, it shall be forever. And as Solomon said, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. So too, in a world of doubt, we know that God's work is eternal. Everything that we know in our life is temporary because we live in a world that has been touched by sin. God created Adam and Eve. They had it perfect. They had it great. But when they sinned, God said, now you're going to know suffering. Now you're going to know death. Now you're going to know the effects of sin. And part of those effects of sin on the world is that everything is breaking down. Everything is getting worse. We look at the earth around us and we know we're in need of redemption. We know that we're in need of Christ coming and setting up his kingdom and making all things new. Joy to the world. The Christmas song talks about that and referencing the coming of Jesus Christ and how he will reestablish here on the earth. Even creation itself will be restored to a better state. 
evolution says, well, there was nothing, and then eventually it got better and better and better. But that's not the scientific principles we see taking place about us. We see that everything's wearing out, it's getting older, and the effects of sin have taken place in this world. That's why I think it's so hard for us to just grasp that fact of heaven and eternity. I remember being a little kid and trying to think about just maybe I was a weird little kid. I don't know, but I laid in bed and thought about this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, the Bible says heaven lasts forever, like forever and ever. And if it was 700 billion years and then it would be over, that would give me a a way that I could measure it and accept it and comprehend it. But the fact that will be there forever and time will not apply is not something we can truly grasp and comprehend. We can believe it by faith. But God is not bound by time. God has no beginning. God has no end. And heaven will have no sin ever entering into it, ever in the past or in the future. The devil himself will never walk into heaven to accuse the brethren like he used to, but rather the new heaven and the new earth will meet together and it will be a place of perfection where nothing defiling shall ever enter in. And like the very nature of God himself, we will have no ending. Rather, we will exist with God for all of eternity. As I said, I had a list of a few things. I may just mention the other ones, but things that the Bible says God has established and thereby we know they will last forever. Number one, God's word will endure forever. And that's what we'll talk about with the rest of our time here tonight. In your verses that are printed out, Psalm 119.89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And now I, I we know and believe that there are things... Be careful in the way I say this. The word of God at different points of the scripture may refer to something different in that moment than the printed 66 books of the Bible. Sometimes he's giving his command to someone and it is his word. Anything that Jesus ever said was the word of God because he was God and he was speaking. However, we do know emphatically that the printed 66 books of the Bible are are the word of God. They All of it is inspired by God. All of it is given to us by him. And he has declared that this is his word and that it will last forever. And I believe that this obviously is part of the word of God that is settled forever in heaven. It may not be every word that God has ever spoken, but it's every word he wants you and I to have in order to know his revealed truth and to serve him with our life. Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I'm aware that there's a a lot of controversy among a lot of people that think that verse 7 is talking about the poor people referenced in the chapter and not the words of God. And I've heard people be so strong about that, that when I tried to study it and research it for myself, in my opinion, I think it's very arrogant to be so emphatic about the point that it's not referring to the words of God, because the psalm, you can read it later, but it's structured where it's talking about man and the words of man, and then it contrasts the words of God to the works of men and it stops and it says the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times thou shalt keep them um, 
it, it could be said them or him, but in the Hebrew, him refers to sometimes a collection of things that were just referenced. So them is accurate. If you were to see him, it might be a little confusing. It's talking about a group of things all wrapped up together as one. And from, from my reading, what I've always been taught of the Bible, I definitely believe it's talking about the words of the Lord. The words of the Lord, they, they're pure. And then it also says, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And I do believe that since the time the Bible was inspired from the time it was written down in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it has existed upon this earth. It could be sought out and it has been not only inspired by God, but also preserved so that throughout every generation, we would have access to the words of God as a church, as the church. Yes, we need people who know Hebrew and who know Greek, and that's the reason they were able to translate it into the English in the first place, and we look at the Hebrew, we look at the Greek because it helps us properly define what was translated into English. But it is true that inspiration, if God had inspired the Bible, yet failed to preserve it, it wouldn't have done us much good. I believe the Bible teaches that the printed word of God, the 66 books that we have, God's promise they would be available to each and every generation. Isaiah 40, verse number 7 the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Ecclesiastes 3.14 told us that nothing can be put to it or anything taken from it. Paul said in his day that there were those who were handling the word of God deceitfully, but rather we should follow the example of rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's see a couple more verses before I got to the other ones I was jumping ahead to. So first Peter chapter one and verse number 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word of God, two things the scripture says, it lives forever and it abides forever. Remember, the word of God is quick. The word quick meaning alive. It's quick, it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe that the Bible is alive because it was inspired by God. It has a different authority on it than the words of man could ever have. So it's described as being alive. It liveth forever, but also it abideth forever. I do not believe that there was a 400, 500 year period of church history where everyone had the wrong Bible and then they discovered two that had been hidden from the rest of the church for 500 years and that that was the true Bible. I believe that God said it would abide forever. It would be with us forever. And that's probably the main reason I'm staunchly the traditional received text Textus Receptus is because the other text that many of the modern translations are taken from were taken from a different line of original manuscripts which were held by the Catholic Church for 500 years without them allowing anyone else to even look at it. I believe that what the church had, what was being used, and the 5,000 that are extant left till today 
I believe they're the Word of God because I believe that the Word of God was to be available to every generation, not hidden in a cave to be discovered for us to have truth that churches did not have for several centuries. I wasn't planning to talk about all that. Verse 24, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. Notice what it's doing now, what all these other texts do. It contrasts God and the word of God to man himself. Yes, all flesh were like grass. We'll grow up, we'll be alive for a little bit, we'll die, we'll be cut down. But in contrast, verse 25, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. If you were saved, I would wager a guess that most everyone here tonight probably had someone helping you, guiding you, witnessing to you. As the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I understand the Bible except some man show me? And even if all you did have was the Bible and you read just straight directly through it, the point I'm trying to make is whether someone witnessed to you or whether you read the Bible itself, We were saved because of the words of the Bible that we read. That's what we have. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. We're able to hear and receive the gospel and we're able to give it to others because the Bible has been preserved and because the word of God lasts forever and we have it to preach to other people. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And Andrew, help me if I'm getting something wrong or correcting it, but when, or correct me if I'm wrong, but when he's talking about the law, he's obviously talking about the Pentateuch, about the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And when he says one jot or one tittle shall not pass from it, till all be fulfilled, That is in the Hebrew, the smallest of markings that I've heard would be likened into the English to the dotting of the I or the crossing of the T. And God said from that smallest, minutest of detail, his word would not pass away. Again, I find it interesting to note what he's talking about is the Hebrew. And he did say that the original languages would be preserved forever. So if we have the original languages preserved, then we have something that we can translate into other languages and have an accurate Bible like we believe we have. We don't believe that in the 1600s or any other period in history, God had to re-inspire the Bible into English or give us something that was lost. Rather, we believe that God has always preserved his word upon the face of the earth and having access to it, we're able to faithfully translate it into other languages and thereby we may say even in another language we have the inspired preserved word of God because we have the original to compare it to as Jesus said one jot or one tittle would never pass away till all would be fulfilled few minutes left. Uh, I'll be wrapping up here tonight. I know this is just a lot of scripture, but uh, very foundational and good to be reminded of the fact that the Bible is the word of God inspired by him, not the word of man. And the Bible says that it will last forever for God has done it. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The words of Christ will last forever. 
And then uh, we did read from Ecclesiastes 3.14 that nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. Uh, Jason, would you like to read, uh, I'm going to have a couple people help me with the last of these, that section there from Revelation, the famous one, ending of the Bible, uh, Revelation 22.18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So very strong language there in verse 19, perhaps saying that if we are one that is of a mind to take away from the word of God and to add to it, then we're evidencing the fact that we were never actually saved. But whatever exactly you want to say that verse 19 would mean, we can definitely take the point away that God does not appreciate it when we mess with his words. I heard a man say one time he was dictating a letter to his secretary. The letter had gone out to all kinds of people. And then later he saw a copy of it and read it. And he was saying, that's not what I told her to put in there. She changed it. And he said, why did you do that? She said, well, I just thought there was a better way to word it. And he said, I was angry because I knew I wanted my words conveyed the way that I told them. And then he thought about the Bible and the fact that God must not like it if we try to change what he has said. A lot of ways that we can do that, yes, by adding or taking away words from the Bible itself, but if we were to look at the Bible skeptically and have an agenda and try to twist it to fit our sin or whatever else, the definition of salvation to our own selfish selfish uh, desires and premises and agenda, we would be taking away from or adding to the Bible if we are not accurately interpreting what it says. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 6 adds this also, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Okay, a couple of more things to read you. We're almost done. As the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. If you try to change the word of God, you will end up being reproved by God and being found to be a liar. For if we change what God has said, then we're automatically lying because everything God has ever said is true. There's a story here that I love that was taken from the works of John Bunyan. And this story is told. As Mr. Bunyan was upon the road near Cambridge, there overtakes him a scholar that had observed him a preacher and said to him, How dare you preach, seeing you have not the original, being not a scholar? Then said Mr. Bunyan, Have you the original? Yes, said the scholar. Nay, but, said Mr. Bunyan, have you the very selfsame original copies that were written by the penmen of the scriptures, prophets, and apostles? No, said the scholar, but we have the true copies of those originals. How do you know that, said Mr. Bunyan? How, said the scholar? Why, we believe that what we have is a true copy of the original. Then, said Mr. Bunyan, so do I believe 
our English Bible is a true copy of the original, then away rid the scholar. I've always loved that little story. It's kind of funny the way that it's told in the English, but that has been the cry of a lot of people. Well, if you're not the scholar or you're not an expert in the original languages, you shouldn't be allowed to preach. But he was simply stating that the authorized version, which he was using in those days, they believed by faith was accurately translated from the original the same way the scholar believed that those are copies of the original language that they had were faithful copies of the original. And as uh, Jude says, the faith was once delivered to the saints. The truth of God was given to the church. The Bible was given to the common people so that they could read it, that they could understand it and not have to trust. Well, what does the preacher say? Well, what does the priest say? I want to talk a little bit about William Tyndale on Sunday, but he was talking to another priest who was saying, well, you shouldn't be worried about translating the Bible into English. Uh, so that goes against the laws of the Pope and what the Pope has said you're allowed to do. And they have the church. They can come ask us what the Bible means. And William Tyndale said, I care not for the Pope or his laws, but rather the day will come in England when the plowboy knows more about the Bible than even he does or you do. His point being that the, the boy who worked in the field should have the Bible available in his language, that he could read it, that he could know what it said, because that was the intention of the Bible, not just that we have to go to experts and to people to learn what it meant. When my dad was in high school, he went to a Catholic school, whether high school or when he was younger, but when he was a child and a teenager, he went to Mass, and back in those days in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Catholic Mass was given in Latin. You could not understand what they were saying, and someone asked a priest who came into his high school class, I do believe this part was high school, they said, well, the, the girl said, well, how much should we read our Bible? And the priest said to his entire class, don't read the Bible. The priest goes to college so they know what the Bible means. Just ask the priest what the Bible means. Don't read it for yourself. And there's been a reason why churches like the Catholic Church have wanted the Bible not being read by the people because if we read it for ourselves and are able to see what it means, we'll see that a lot of what they are doing is not necessarily scriptural. But God has preserved the Bible so that we may have it for ourselves. And as we consider the fact that the Bible is eternal, one more uh, famous uh, little poem is called The Anvil of God's Word. The writer says, Last eve I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with the beating of time. How many anvils have you had? said I to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears out the hammers, you know. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon, yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers gone. The point being as he considered the blacksmith who, who pounded upon the anvil 
the anvil itself was never worn out, but the hammers were. So the word of God has stood the test of time where the critics and all the blows and all the critiques and all the enemies slowly fade away. But the word of God exists and stands still. Let's see with the last two minutes that we have here. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The word inspiration meaning God breathed. If it's scripture, it was breathed out by God. It wasn't the people themselves that wrote it, but rather God used them to write the Bible word for word so that all of it could accurately be said, it is God's word, not man's word. Jason, would you read the Second Peter passage there? We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There Peter is talking in the verses before that about the Mount of Transfiguration and how they saw Christ in his glorified body. And then he says of the Bible, of the scripture itself, it's a more sure word of prophecy than what they saw. Because what you see with your eyes can deceive you. But he said the Bible that was preserved in their day that they had their hands on was a more sure word of prophecy than even if you had seen Christ like that with your own eyes. One more verse and then we'll be dismissed. Second Kings seventeen thirteen. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers. So what he's saying is that it's God that was testifying, but he was testifying through the mouth of the prophets saying, turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. So whose commandments, whose statutes, whose law is it? It's God's, but he simply sent them by his servants, the prophets. The same thing as Peter was saying in old time, the scripture was not written by the will of man, but rather God, they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And we know that God did it different ways with different people where Paul has his own style that all throughout the books will read and you can kind of tell it was written by Paul, Peter and different people, different ways. God used them. He used who they were, but he inspired them so that on a word by word level, it could accurately be said it's the word of God and not the word of man. And I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Praise the Lord. I feel like I've stumbled through a couple of things I was trying to say. Did anybody have a question or thought to add on any point here tonight? Okay, and I get off easy. All right, good. Uh, Brother Jason, would you dismiss us with a word of prayer?